previous weeks because I'm not having to preach today. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was with uh, my staff in our meeting, and I said, man, you know, they said, are you preaching right after you get back from Israel? I said, as far as I know, they said, let, let Larry do it. And I said, yes, let, let's, let Larry do it. And Larry uh, joyfully agreed, which uh, th- that's not all, that doesn't always happen in a situation like this, but so, so grateful for it. And believe me, I needed that, Larry, so you've already been, uh, been helping me that way, and I'm so grateful. Uh, I'm going to be brief. I know Blake said it's going to be more formal introduction, but so many of us know Larry already. Uh, graduate of Sanford University, was a pre-ministerial scholar there. He was among the group that I call the originals. They were the first group to go through for all four years and uh, graduate. And uh, Larry was also a university fellow, which was a real honor to be in both of those. Uh, was a great student, was also extremely well-traveled. I was always jealous. You'd already Have you been to Israel, though, Larry? Oh, you should go someday. Uh, otherwise, he has out-traveled me by leaps and bounds, as he could well tell you. The cool thing about Larry is, though, that he has already traveled on mission trips. You did Cape Town, didn't you? Once or twice? Once? Yeah, it was just amazing. He's been on these mission trips when he was a youth intern here, uh, has been on stateside mission trips with, with our youth as well. Um, let me go back again. The last two morning, I, I am still on Jerusalem time, and right now, uh, well, I woke up at 1 a.m. the last two mornings, which is 9 a.m. Uh, in Jerusalem, so that's another reason I'm brief, hopefully. But uh, Larry, uh, graduate of Sanford University, went on to McAfee School of Theology over in Atlanta. Many of you remember a Victoria Lawson, who was an intern here, and she would sing like an angel here. She is now a student over there as well. While he was there, he was at First Baptist Church of Tucker, Georgia, as the Minister of Youth. Later on was a pastoral associate at First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Alabama, one of the really great Baptist churches, pastored by one of my best friends in ministry, Travis Collins, who also knows uh, some other folks here, uh, Richard Smith, among others, and uh, did great work there. Felt led, though he had had a lot of work with youth and everything, had a great opportunity to go get a Ph.D., uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, which, in my opinion, is probably the best all-around seminary there is, unless you go up to those, you know, the, the Ivy League things. And, and But they've got the best uh, professors of missions, evangelism, counseling, and some incredible New Testament uh, professors. And uh, he decided to go to get a Ph.D. in New Testament. Uh, he has completed his comprehensive exams, which is what the, the big bear to, to uh, defeat and is now in the dissertation phase, which he can do wherever, which means that he can do it right here, which is so exciting. I think it's going to be cool. We'll get another doctor on our staff do, messing with the students, which is so great. Just the minister to youth, and he's got a Ph.D. from Fuller Seminary. Uh, he did so much here. Uh, mission trips, uh, small groups, taught Sunday school classes. Uh, uh, he's very well known for his work down at Beach Retreat. Jerry, you remember how scandalous you know, beach retreat would be. And um, there are two videos I probably should have shown you before you vote on him. Uh, One is a 10-minute dance that he did with Abby Womack Nevins now, which if anybody has that, send that to me. Uh, And also uh, there was some of you, how many of y'all remember Clemency, the Christian rock group that always, are they going to be here again this year? Clemency is an amazing Christian band that we always have come and, uh, lead the worship for our uh, B3 
Beach Retreat, and they did a uh, music video many years ago called uh, I Will Take Your Place. I remember uh, Will Halcom was in it, Caleb Yoder, kind of got all that going. There. Oh, oh, uh, I saw the rector. Where's Aaron? Is Aaron here? Aaron was like a big star. I thought I saw Aaron Rector. Maybe I didn't. She's a big star in it. But Larry plays this kind of nerdish guy who, but at the end of the video, as it's fading out, he does this like three minute funk groove dance that's. I, I should have shown this to you before you vote on him. But anyway, he's an amazing, gifted uh, minister, scholar, connects with students as well as anybody I've ever seen, and just honored that God worked uh, in his own due timing to, to have the opportunity for us again to be able to bring him on as minister to students here. When, when we started this and we found out that Larry could possibly be available I'll be real honest, it was pretty much a no-brainer, I think, is what Jody and I were saying. It's like, we, we got to see if he would be willing to come back. So it's an exciting time. I'm very grateful that Larry is here with us this morning and preaching for us. And uh, just honored that uh, we have the chance to vote on here this day. So uh, be prayerfully uh, considering that. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you, Larry, in just a few minutes. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Brookwood. Carly joked with me this morning, and she's right. Uh, We could just have her read the whole Bible. The passage I gave her knocked out a large chunk of it already, so... Not only that, she got like all the ancient Near Eastern city names. I owe you uh, forever, Carly, so thank you for that. I, I already mentioned this downstairs to some people. 
that I was going to offer a caveat that uh, I have a combination of like sleep deprivation and a lot of caffeine, so if I say anything crazy, uh, that's why. But then I thought, like, that's 90% of youth ministry, so that's not a good excuse <laughs> this morning. Um, Reverend Brand summed it up well when he said it's good to be home. Uh, and so Marilyn and I feel like this morning is a dream for us because we feel like this place uh, is home for us. Uh, this morning we celebrate the day of Pentecost, and I couldn't think of a more perfect day to be here with you, a place where I have seen over and over again the ways the Spirit has been poured out in really powerful uh, and transformative ways. But somehow, it's been almost seven years since I interned at Brooklyn, and uh, a lot of life has happened in that time, and so I thought, uh, as we get started, I'll catch you up a little bit, uh, for those of you who know me and don't, what's happened uh, to my life in the last seven years. I'll give you a snapshot a little bit before then. Um, but at first glance, I will confess, the story of uh, Acts 2 and the story of an individual don't seem to go well together. Uh, but I hope, or I think, or at least I've convinced myself, that the pattern that emerges from my own experience is one that we'll find uh, when we turn to this passage this morning. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ways uh, I could start this morning, a lot of places I could pick to begin, but I'll start uh, with my own experience uh, in youth ministry. As an uh, 11th grader in high school, I had felt that God was calling me to do full-time ministry. Um, and I had a youth minister that was really transformative uh, in my experience. But one Wednesday night, uh, he told us that he had felt God's call to this church in Huntsville. And I can remember being really shaken by that, not knowing, like, how do you, how do you process this thing? And I, I trusted him, so I knew that if he was doing this, God must have been calling him to do it. But I was also a little bitter because uh, I had such a close relationship with him. Uh, if I could go back, I would tell uh, 17-year-old Larry to calm down a little bit and that God was working things uh, in ways that would become evident later on. Uh, after, as Dr. Barnett mentioned, I uh, came to Sanford. I, I did the pre-ministerial scholars program. I did the university fellows program, studied classics. And uh, that path of sort of uh, the church and the uh, academy or the university or academics uh, is one that I'm still walking and I get to share a part of that journey still uh, with you today. Uh, I think it's important. I think both are asking questions that the other one needs to hear. Um, I'll skip a little bit past my Brookwood time, although I will say this is a lesson to us all. Things that go on the internet stay on the internet. Uh, so... the. Uh, when, the vi- when I learned the videos were not being shown, let's just say, thanks be to God, was in order. <laughs> uh, but after my time here, I moved to Atlanta to work on my MDiv. And that was a, a lot harder transition than I thought it was going to be. I, no one told me really about the space that people need to mourn transition. And like when you, when you leave a place that has meant a lot to you and people that mean a lot to you, like you need space to process that. Um, so I looked back on this time a lot. Uh, in Atlanta. Also didn't help that I was dating a girl who still lived in Birmingham uh, at the time, so my attention was well divided uh, between the two. But as uh, I was in seminary, Marilyn and I got engaged uh, and then married. We actually held our rehearsal dinner uh, here at the church. Uh, So again, Brookwood popped up at a really important moment uh, for us. As my time was ending in Atlanta, I got a call from that youth minister uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, and he said, hey, we're going through some transition. We've got this temporary two-year position opening up for two years. Like, would you uh, be interested? And sure enough, it worked out where Marilyn and I moved to Huntsville. I was able to work on staff with him for two years, which, if you're doing the math here, actually means I got to spend more time with 
uh, my youth minutes of time than I would have had he stayed uh, in Fort Payne. Uh, and that time in Huntsville was really transformative to me. I, I was doing adult ministry, but which is uh, sort of an odd thing to ask a 22-year-old to minister to adults when I had no experience of the things they were doing. I don't know what to do when you have an empty nester. I've never been there. Um, but I was doing that ministry, but I always found myself sort of sucked back into what the students were doing. I always found myself in the student space, having conversation uh, with students. And while I was there, the church decided to go through this like, uh, church-wide visioning process where they went to uh, Pasadena and worked with the Fuller Youth Institute there, and they did this thing called Sticky Faith, and you do this training, and it's, it is like a philosophy of ministry for youth ministry, but it's really a philosophy of ministry for the church. You need the entire church buy-in uh, for this. And for reasons that are still unclear to me, uh, I got to go on this trip. I was in a temporary position, but I got to go be a part of this uh, cohort. And we went to Pasadena uh, twice. And while we were there the first time, it was in February of 2015. During one of the breaks, they were like, hey, we're going to do some campus tours here. Anybody's interested? And I thought, I like campuses. I'll go see what this is like. So uh, go around on the tour. And in that moment, this seed was planted, I think, of, uh, you know, that might be fun. I like school. Maybe a PhD is what's next when this thing comes, uh, comes to an end. We go back in October. I've, I've done some thinking about this. Marilyn and I have sort of talked about it. And I sort of send like a last-minute Hail Mary email to this guy that I just found on Fuller's website. That I was like, well, that guy looks like he's interested in the things I'm interested in. Let's see if he'll chat with me. And he did. And sort of that led to uh, what happened where we, we ended up moving to Pasadena. And I ended up working with this guy that I had this meeting with. Um, but at, and, and I've loved Fuller. I've loved my time there. I've loved uh, that experience. Uh, but Marilyn and I also knew, like, once I finish my exams, we can, we can do other things. And we sort of got the feeling that our season of life was sort of ending there. We were ready for new things. And we were really ready to be back closer to our families and, and our friends. Uh, because in case you don't know, Pasadena is a long way from Birmingham. Um, and it's not a cheap plane flight. They need to figure that out. Um, <laughs> And then uh, I'm in a texting group where we text about basketball with uh, Austin, with Caleb, with Ethan Astors, with a friend of mine named Boo, uh, and with Thorne Williams. And we, we are mostly arguing about some ridiculous trade that Ethan thinks the Lakers should make. But we also kind of share life updates in there. And, and Austin had mentioned that he and Kelsey were feeling called to South Africa. And um, I couldn't be more excited for them. But I, I must confess, when I heard that from Austin, I sort of was like, well how do I get back into this thing at, at Brookwood? So thanks for the heads up, Austin. Uh, and, uh, you know, through this process, uh, there's just been step after step of affirmation in mine and Mary Evelyn's life. So things that have sort of just fallen into place to, to, to think like God has called us and led us here this morning. But the interesting thing in all of it is, is that I never had like a burning bush experience. I haven't, God's never called me, you know, uh, never talked to to God audibly. Um, I, I just have never had those moments of divine inspiration. For me, it's often been in the act of reflecting on the ways that doors have been opened and closed that I've been able to look back and say, like, that was the Spirit uh, moving in my life. It took pausing uh, and reflecting on that, which I hope brings us uh, to today's passage. So Acts 2 begins by telling us it's the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is this holy day celebrated 50 days after Passover. And it's been quite an eventful day for the uh, eventful 50 days for the disciples, right? I mean, the Passover before, Jesus, their leader, uh, is crucified. 
I can imagine. They've, they've left everything for him. Uh, they're devastated. And then three days later, this guy just appears again uh, in the room with them. They go from sort of the depths of grief to just sort of the mountaintops of joy. The unthinkable uh, has happened. And the beginning of Acts tells us that the resurrected, resurrected Jesus spent 40 days with them. Uh, and it says he was proclaiming uh, the kingdom of God. But just when they get used to Jesus being back with them, he leaves again, right? He ascends into heaven. And there's a particularly important piece of the story in Acts 1 uh, that becomes a little more pronounced in where we're going today in Acts 2. That right before Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, he offers one last word to the disciples. They ask Jesus, is the time finally here where you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what we've been expecting you to do. And he responds and he says this, starting in Acts 1-7. It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus promises them that he's not leaving them alone. Uh, instead, they'll receive the power of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the stage is set for the day of Pentecost, which brings us to Acts 2. Acts 2 begins like this. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... Dot, dot, dot. So from the outset of Acts 2, I think we encounter somewhat of a tension here. Acts 2 begins with this word, suddenly. And suddenly from heaven there came like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house. Suddenly the Spirit has burst into the room. Tongues like fire descended on the disciples. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in other languages. But the word suddenly, it introduces this sort of tension. Uh, that is depending on how we understand this word suddenly. Uh, I guess that the word suddenly probably makes us think of one of two things here. Uh, first, we might think that something sudden that happens sort of happens out of nowhere. Like, that was sudden. I, I never saw that coming. And I think often when we read Acts 2, we have a tendency to think that the Holy Spirit suddenly appears as in out of nowhere. The appearance of the Spirit in Acts 2, though, is is hardly out of nowhere. Just 20 verses earlier, Jesus told the disciples and us, the reader of Acts, that this is coming. It's sudden then, uh, but it's not unexpected. I think there's another way to think of suddenness, one that I think makes better sense of what's happening in the story, and one that at least for me in my experience makes better sense of how I understand the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life. So the second way of thinking about something suddenly happen is to think like this climactic moment, right? This moment in action sort of bursts through and like this series of preceding events, like they finally weave together to like this moment that something happens. Of course, it's a, it's a powerful moment. I think here like uh, the image of like a dam bursting comes to mind for me. Like the, the, when the water comes through, it's powerful. But uh, at least as far as I know, dams don't just burst, right? Like there's something that happened. A crack, something, uh, something caused the structure to lose its integrity, increase in water pressure. Something has happened that preceded this event that seems sudden. Uh, I also think about a recent trip I took uh, in Pasadena. So we only have one car. Maryland takes it to school. And my life has kind of lived within like a one-mile radius of itself. I just walk everywhere because we live really close to campus. And my favorite coffee shop is like at the brink of that uh, radius. Right? It's like a mile from our place. And I figured, I'm going to go there and try to knock out some work. It's a great excuse to get good coffee, so I'm doing work. Um, and so I walk, uh, walk to this coffee shop, and I get, 
no joke, almost the midpoint of my walk back, and the bottom falls out. It never rains in Southern California, and the bottom fell out. And uh, I just get, I get soaked, but fortunately find this overpass and just enforce to stand in the rain. In that moment, the rain felt sudden, but it should not have been unexpected. Uh, I carry with me a, a device in my pocket that will tell me a weather forecast, that will show me a radar uh, that had I looked at it, I would have known there was a really high chance of rain. I also could have used my sense of uh, sight, right? It's a great thing. I could have looked up and seen, wow, there's really dark clouds today. I wonder if it's going to rain. I did none of those things. Instead, I got wet. It felt sudden, but it wasn't unexpected. You see, I think something rarely, if ever, comes out of nowhere. There's always pieces working behind the scenes of things happening, things that we might not see uh, working together that produces these moments that feel sudden. And if we've been paying attention in our reading of Acts to this point, there's nothing unexpected about the appearance of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit's already appeared as a character four times in chapter 1. Uh, in one sixteen, it's the Holy Spirit who spoke through David. In one we we're reminded that John the Baptist uh, said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. In one two, Jesus is said to speak through the Holy Spirit. And in Acts one eight, which we just read, Jesus tells the disciples that they will receive the power uh, when the Holy Spirit descends on them. If we take into account Luke's first volume, his gospel, the evidence becomes even more pronounced. In Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit appears 12 times uh, as a character. Uh, the Spirit did not appear just suddenly in Acts 2. It's, it's been there. It's building up to something. But in Acts 2, we get something a little different, a little different kind of outpouring from the Spirit. It says the Spirit bursts into the room like the sound of a rushing wind and like tongues of fire. There's no, there's no mistaking that this moment is sudden, but again... It's not unexpected. We're told that the crowds gather, and I think this is where I find myself struck by a particular detail in the story. Twice the crowds are amazed that the disciples are speaking in their own language. You see this in verse 6 and verse 11. Jesus had promised the disciples that through the power of the Spirit, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The power of the, uh, the Spirit in Acts 2 is demonstrated through the gift of language. Each disciple was given the gift to communicate in a different language. And the text tells us that uh, at this moment there are people from all over Jerusalem present. Not only is this a cosmopolitan city, but they're celebrating this holy day. People from all over are there. If you, if you go back and read those really hard-to-pronounce cities uh, that Carly read for us, if you, look, if you chart them on a map, it's really interesting to see. They, they sort of map uh, from east to west, back south, and back up to Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem sort of the hub of this circle? Uh, it's, um, it, it's an interesting way to see what Jesus has talked about in Acts 1-8 ha- having taken place uh, in this moment. We're told that the, grounds, the, the crowds were drawn by this strange sound. Um, this powerful sound of the Spirit's presence and wind and fire and word. In this moment, the disciples are witnessing in Jerusalem to those from the ends of the earth, at least as they knew it. The Spirit wastes no time in fulfilling what Jesus promised just 20 verses earlier. The gift of of language is being used to communicate God's powerful deeds uh, to the crowds. Again, it's sudden, but it's not unexpected. See, language is powerful. I'm convinced that whoever made up the saying, uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but birds will never hurt me, I'm convinced that person actually doesn't understand how language works. Uh, Language is is powerful, right? It it has the power to create, has the power to destroy Uh, At the beginning of Scripture, God speaks, right? Creation began with language. 
Uh, I recently got to experience the power that language uh, has to create and to shape and to build a community. In my program at Fuller, uh, in the year that came in with me, I had two really close friends, a guy named David, uh, he's from New Jersey, a girl named Margarita from uh, the Ukraine, uh, and we just sort of uh, hit it off. Uh, we hung out all the time uh, our first year, and during that year, Margarita met this guy named Frederick, and Frederick was uh, from Norway, um, and they dated for like six weeks, I think, and got engaged. That's a different story that she's responsible for telling. Uh, <laughs> But Margarita, uh, she asked David and I to come to her wedding. They were getting married uh, in Norway. So, Dr. B, have you ever been to Norway? I have not. Let's see. It's, it's not the land of Jesus, but they, uh, it's pretty, that's pretty good. So, David and I, we, we, uh, we go to Norway for this wedding. She actually asked me to perform the ceremony, which was really cool. It was a really cool honor. Although, like, I could only really do the theological marriage side of it. I, I have no legal authority in the country of Norway, so... They had to get someone else to sign the paperwork. But it was this really cool moment um, for David and I. We go out there. We get to stay at Frederick's family's house, right? And uh, I've got a picture of, of the view from their house. Uh, it's just incredible. That's a view from their living room. It just looks out over this valley that was just covered in snow. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, but one thing you will notice that's, uh, uh, about this picture, and it's not just because of when I took it, but there's no people in it. Uh, and that's significant. There's no, there's no people there because uh, not only was I staying there, but Margarita's family was staying there. Uh, and then, of course, Frederick's family lived there. But Frederick's family all speaks Norwegian. Margarita's family all speaks Russian. Uh, I speak English. And I can semi-communicate with the people from Norway because they know English. And, um, but Margarita's family doesn't. They, they have no way to communicate. I, I distinctly remember one night sitting at a dinner table... And it was like on my right side, there was this conversation happening in Norwegian. On my left side, there was this conversation happening in Russian. And I thought, this is really cool. I'm glad I don't know if they're talking about me or not. <laughs> uh, but what that meant was that when we weren't having shared meals together, uh, if Margarita especially wasn't around to translate for people, uh, everyone, we just went to our own rooms. Like, we didn't have any interaction because what do you do? You just stare at each other. You make uh, attempts at uh, signing things to each other, which none of us had the gift to do. So... Uh, we were sort of uh, dispersed. And then suddenly, let me see what I did there. Uh, a new person arrived. Uh, Frederick's sister was dating this guy uh, named Bob. At least we called him Bob. I am 100% confident his name was not actually Bob. Uh, because Bob was this, uh, he was a refugee from Syria, actually. Uh, and they were dating. They met in Amsterdam. And he had, he, he came in and he, he had one of those personalities that sort of lights up a room. Like when he's there, you know it. Um, and he could see this group dynamic that was happening, and he was not going to have it. Uh, because as we, we came to learn, like, in his experience from fleeing from his own com- country, he had, he had been in about nine different countries before he finally landed uh, in Amsterdam. And he had this struggle of being the outsider, the person that couldn't communicate with anyone else. And he talked about incredibly isolating the feeling that is. But what he had discovered was that uh, on Google Translate, on the app, what you can do now is you can actually talk into the thing uh, and it will talk back in whatever language you want it to translate to. And so he, he brought everyone to the living room, and we start talking back and forth to each other. And I, I promise you, I've never seen anything like it. The group dynamic completely changed. We did not stop hanging out with each other, laughing with each other, trying to figure out why Google translated that way and learning by expressions from others that's not what we meant. Uh, <laughs> But it changed the group. I want to show you this, this, these last two pictures. This is the group. This was us 
the, the last day because we had one day after the wedding. And so we decided we love hanging out with each other so much. Let's go tour the city. And so we did this and we went out uh, for a meal together. And uh, I got to see the way that language can really transform people in communities. Language is powerful. And we encounter that here uh, in this story. You see, in Acts 2, it's, it's not just that the crowds hear the disciples speaking in their native tongues, uh, which is amazing enough in itself. That's miraculous on its own. But it's what they hear them saying that I find really intriguing. Verse 11 tells us that they hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. That one hits me hard because it makes me wonder, what do the crowds hear us saying? I'm afraid the answer might not always be God's deeds of power. It's not just about witnessing or our shared language. The content of our speech matters as well. You see, the disciples here, they're not not concerned to defend their faith. They're not concerned to police the ethical behaviors of the crowds. I'm not saying that things like ethics and morality are not important conversations. They absolutely are. Uh, But it seems to me when I read Acts 2 that our primary task, the one that sits first and foremost for us, is to simply proclaim the mighty deeds of God. But what does it look like to speak of God's mighty deeds? Uh, Peter shows us here in Acts 2. He notices the crowds and he hears the conversation. Uh, The scene is disorienting for the crowd, right? The only explanation they got is these guys must be drunk. Not so fast, Peter says, though, in his uh, best Lee Corso uh, impression. He says it's only 9 in the morning. I just think that's a hilarious response. Peter's obviously never been in an airport where (laughs) things don't matter. But he's saying something else is going on here. And he cites this passage from Joel 2. Peter says, if you've been paying attention, this scene isn't sudden. Uh, It's not unexpected. The promise of the outpouring of the Spirit is an ancient promise, the one that our prophets told us about. Suddenly the moment of that outpouring is here. We catch that at the end of that passage that that Carly read for us. Peter goes on in the rest of Acts 2 to proclaim the mighty deeds of God that he's witnessed for the last 50 days and the three years that he spent with Jesus before that. He tells them of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the parts of Acts 2 that we didn't read. He recounts God's faithful actions expressed in the work of Jesus. But if we go back to the Gospels, in the events, in real time, as those things were happening in Peter's life, Peter doesn't always come off the best, right? He doesn't always get it. He can't see the way that God's working these things together. But it's only when you get to Acts 2, Peter starts to put the pieces together. What he's seen in the Gospels, what he's seen in Acts 1, it finally starts to click to him. Uh, And he begins to testify to these powerful deeds. You see, it took Peter stopping to reflect on the ways that these pieces had uh, woven together to be able to see, like, oh, this is what... God was doing. This is how Jesus was working. This is what the Spirit was weaving together. And this is what that outpouring looks like. Like I've already told you, it's it's been often difficult for me to see these moments where the Spirit's moving in life. It's only by taking a step back and and trying to piece it all together that I I can really reflect and say, yeah, I think think God was there in that. And when I take the time to reflect on these moments, I am struck by God's incredible faithfulness. I can see how these seemingly unconnected events were being woven together to something even better than I could have initially imagined. It's only by doing that then that I have the words to speak about God's mighty deeds, like Acts tells us. So in order to speak of these deeds, we must reflect on where we have been. We must ask questions like, where's God shown up? Where have you noticed God? 
How's God used the events in your past to shape your present or your future? When was the last time you sat down as a family and talked about the ways that God had moved uh, in your family life? Or when was the last time you took a friend to coffee and you, you shared these things, thought about these things with each other? And the hard thing is that's just with people that we know. Like, what about the crowds, the people that don't know? We don't know. How, how do we, or when have we talked to the crowds about these mighty deeds that God has done? I think there's a sweet spot here, though, that uh, we need to offer some caution on. Because there's a difference between looking back to see how the Spirit's weaving things together and dwelling on the past. There's a risk of being stuck in idolizing things. And when we idolize the past, I think we find it often hard to move past it, to recognize where God is moving in the moment. We get this really funny scene in Acts 1. Uh, I think it's one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. I think it's even funnier in... Uh, well, I'll tell you that in just a second. I'll read Acts 1, this, this passage first, verses 10 through 11. He says, When they were going and they were gazing up toward heaven, this is after Jesus just left, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who was taken, uh, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. I want to show you this picture. This is how medieval artists, uh, this is actually a really popular way to depict the ascension. You just get like Jesus' feet dangling out of the sky. <laughs> So when you get to this question uh, of these two people in white robes asking, what are you looking at? Uh, and they start to chastise them. I think, what are you talking about? What an absurd question. These guys just watched someone get sucked up into the clouds. Of course they're staring like, I know our grandmothers taught us better, but like, I think they'd be okay with you looking a little while here. But I think the point is, is clear enough in itself, right? They're getting on to them because they're saying, like, don't stand and linger too long. Uh, you've heard the promises. Jesus has already told you what's going to happen. He's promised you that you've got work to do. The Spirit is coming. There are things that need to be done, and you can't do it standing here and looking at what was. You see, when I, I told you a little bit about my experience of, of living in Atlanta and sort of idolizing my time uh, in Birmingham, and uh, what I only realized later was that I was holding on so firmly to the past that I, I ignored where the Spirit was moving in my time. In that city, I did not enjoy living in Atlanta. And part of that, there's a lot of reasons for that, but part of that I think is because I was stuck in the past. I, I couldn't see where God was moving uh, in the present. The first two chapters of Acts reminds us that God has this pattern, this pattern of being faithful to God's promises. Jesus starts it uh, in Acts 1 8 and tells them about the promise, and he fulfills it in chapter 2, just one chapter later. The Spirit is working, it has been working even when we don't notice it. And we're called to proclaim uh, what we've seen, to reflect on it, to see where has God moved, and then move from that space to bear witness. Uh, to me, there's no doubt that the Spirit has been alive and present and uh, moving in this community. I'm excited to be a part of the work that God uh, will do in this place. But the good news is that the Spirit has been present before in this place. The Spirit is present now in this place, and the Spirit will be present. It goes before us in this place. That's good news. Let's remember that, so that when we see the power of God's Spirit being poured out around us, we might recognize, hey, that's, that's sudden. But we know it's not unexpected. Would you pray with me? God, this morning we are grateful for the gift of the Spirit, for the promise of your outpouring, that you have you promised that you have not left us. You are with us, you have been with us, and you go before us. 
God, make us aware of your presence. God, make us proclaimers and witnesses to your mighty deeds. In this place and in all the places, God, that you're calling us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.